From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Thinking about what are the data inputs and how do we make sure that we are capturing the right data so we know what's going on and we know if we're making changes, they're having impact. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Melissa Murray-Bailey, Senior Vice President of Global Sales at Hootsuite. By the end of the program, Melissa will have won you over with her incisive observations on what it takes to build and run a high-performance sales organization. But what I find most inspirational is the fact that Melissa mastered the art of selling despite the fact that she didn't start her career carrying a bag. Over the past two decades, she's been a student of the game, developing and testing her playbook across the globe. In the process, Melissa has also honed her skills as an inspiring leader and an agent for positive change. If anyone wants to know what grit, courage, and conviction look like, then look no further than today's guest. Let's jump into the conversation. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Justin. So great to be here with you. All right. Now, Melissa, obviously, this is the legends of sales and marketing, but we always like to take advantage of the expertise of our guests. I understand that growing up, you were particularly good at shepherding three of your younger sisters. So I thought maybe you could share some babysitting tips with us to help keep small children in line based on your experience. (laughs) I wouldn't say my methods were best practice, and I'm pretty sure my sisters would echo that loudly and might tell you that I'm sharing the softer version of it, Uh, but no Murray girls got hurt uh, being looked after by Melissa, Um, but I was the oldest, and I had the most power So when things were getting out of control or things weren't going how I wanted them to go, I would do things like maybe withhold dinner and say no dinner until you do it this way. Or, you know, I was also larger. So I might, you know, sit on top of them on the couch and say like, stay here. We're not doing what you want to be doing. And so, you know, it was kind of a brute force scare tactics method. I love, I love this. And I love imagining maybe you in the, in the room with the sales team saying, if you guys don't hit your number, I'm going to sit on you. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly there's been some evolution in the thought process and the leadership skill set. Um, in all seriousness, though, you you definitely had to learn what it meant to be a real leader. Tell us a little bit about when you were in college and when you really kind of had to confront for the first time some of the limitations in your leadership abilities. Yes. So when most of your leadership is fortified, you know, with people who are much younger than you, you you just do what what seems best at the time. And so when I became president of my sorority, One of the things that bothered me the most about my sorority is we always started meetings late. And so for my first meeting as president, I instructed the sergeant in arms to close the door and lock it exactly at the meeting start time. And we find all of the girls who were not there at the start time, which was PS about 75% of them. I was not the most popular person after that. You know, all of these college girls who are in a sorority, not expecting to get a fine for being late. Um, We use that money to do great things, but I also had to reassess, was my tactic really the best way to, uh, to get people to come along the journey I wanted to go on with them? I love the fact that you actually had a sergeant at arms. I wish I had a sergeant at arms. How do I get a sergeant at arms? That would come in useful. So help us. You know, when I think of sergeant at arms, I'm thinking of a very large muscular figure 
with 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 some kind of weapon at their side. Is that what we're talking about here? No, we're talking about a nice young lady sitting on a chair by the door, making sure that people are coming and going in an orderly fashion. Okay, so that that was your sergeant at arms. I'm going to stick with my first impression because I think it's much more impressive. <laughs> but but in an interesting sort of way, you you kind of at a young age had these coercive tactics, if you will, to get people to do what you wanted them to do. Melissa, I can actually relate to that. I remember one of my first leadership experiences. I was leading a group of peers, similar situation. Nobody was showing up on time for the meetings. It drove me crazy. We were meeting in a building and I instructed someone at the moment that the meeting starts, lock the doors and nobody's allowed in. And so they did that. And we had like three people in the meeting. And then there were 12 people that were all locked outside. And they received that largely the way I think that your sorority received your tactics. And through that and various other experiences, I realized that I needed to adjust my approach to leadership. I knew there was a reason we got along so well. <laughs> Deep underneath, we have those similarities. But but I mean, just to get into the psychology a little bit, another thing that I think you and I share, we're both very conscientious and kind of score off the charts in terms of responsibility. And so you know, when we're given an assignment or a responsibility, we feel like, wow, we really need to get this done no matter what. And any tactics are on the table. Yes. You know, I feel like when I make a commitment and when I say yes to something that I have to deliver and I've learned over time, it is not deliver at all costs especially as you get into bigger roles and it, you think about engaging people and also ethics, mm -hmm. right? And so, but when you're younger, you're just using the tools at your disposal. I think one of the greatest gifts that a leader can be given in that situation is to be thrown into a situation where they're completely over their head. They have no idea what to do. If you have a sense for the way that you want to go, the direction you want to go, you kind of assume that you know more than everybody else and they just have to do what you tell them to do. It's when you get into that situation where you're clueless that really the, the light bulbs start to go off. And I know that kind of happened for you uh, early in your career as well. Tell us about that and, and what impact that had on your leadership style subsequently. I had done many things where I was fully capable. At least I thought I knew exactly what the right way to do something was. And then I got the opportunity to go to Singapore and to launch CEB's business in Singapore. And I had a moment where I just realized I don't know anything about leading a team in Singapore or doing business in Singapore, what the cultural aspects I needed to take into account would be. And so I started putting things together and just realized I'm not equipped. And so I went out and I got a mentor who was the former CHRO of Singapore Airlines. And I just said, can you help me please? And so he started helping me and guiding me. And at the same time, I was hiring all these people to come into the business, but I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I also didn't know how to lead without knowing. And so I thought, you know, what is the best way to learn quickly and to share and to build a culture that would allow us to be successful? And so I started these meetings every single week where we all got together and we shared what did we learn that week? What went well? What didn't went, go well? What are we going to do about it? And started aggregating all mm. of that. And finally, I went from a sense of not knowing to this collaborative environment where we were all learning and knowing together. And one of the things that came up was it's taking so long to close deals. Why is it taking long to close deals? And so this was our problem for a while. And then we started to look at it and we said, it doesn't take four months to close a deal. It actually takes four meetings to close a deal. Mm -hmm. And so how do we accelerate or um, shrink time between meetings so we could reduce our deal cycle? But if I didn't have that team and that open environment and I just said, 
no, it must be faster. The global average is X. I wouldn't have had the success with the team believing it. They would have just said, you're not from here. You don't know. And we wouldn't have been able to solve that problem together. There's so much goodness in in that story to unpack. You had the the challenge which which felt overwhelming. You had a team that was very knowledgeable, but ultimately the secret was seed power to them. Let them help to be part of the solution. So we're not above any leadership experience or expertise on this program. I'll quote from 38 Special the uh, the song "Hang On Loosely." Hang on loosely and don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. It's so true, though. I mean, you have to, as a leader, you have to have your hand on the business. But if you're holding on too tight, you're going to crush the business and ultimately miss out on a lot of the potential that that organization represents. It's so true. Like sometimes we feel like we are weak if we don't have all the answers and the knowledge, but it actually takes vulnerability to be able to let go and learn new ways from people who who are on your team. Yeah. Well, Melissa, one of the other things I really like about you, you're not afraid to go against the grain. I want to talk a little bit about your academic experience. You got into some great schools. Clearly, you were working hard in high school, high performer. Cornell accepted you. Penn accepted you. Yale accepted you. Where'd you end up going? I ended up going to the University of Maryland. All right. Not not what I would have expected. (laughs) So an amazing list of schools that accepted you. Tell me about the decision to go to the University of Maryland. Yes. So like you mentioned, I worked really hard and I worked hard with the aspiration of going to a good school. And I put that in, in quotes. And and so I applied to all of these schools I thought were good schools. But there were also other factors in my decision. The first was I was pretty dead set on being a biological engineer. Mm. And Maryland had one of the best biological engineering programs. And some of the elite schools didn't have the specific, specific engineering programs. It was more general engineering. The second was I also worked really hard in athletics and had the ability to play on a division one field hockey team. The third piece was I didn't want my family or myself to have to go into a lot of debt. And so when I considered those three things, University of Maryland was the best choice. You had the courage, I guess, to think through the bigger equation and and land on the decision that was right, solving for all of those variables. Was there anything subsequently that was kind of niggling in the back of your head, like, wow, it would have been nice to have one of those big names on my resume? You know, if when I got there, I thought, like, did I work my hard my whole life up until this moment to end up at a state school? Yeah. And I felt a little like disgruntled about that. But I didn't know the greater impact of that because I came from a community that was made up of teachers and people who worked at the casinos and in construction. So I didn't understand the real meaning of having a top tier school Mm -hmm. on your resume and how that might blemish, put a blemish on your um, your career or people might not think of you in the same light. Yeah. With a few decades of, of hindsight now, how do you view that decision? What did you, how did you benefit from it and any regrets associated with it? So I think back at that decision, so many great things came from it. It's a wonderful school. I got a great education. I have so much pride in being a Terrapin. I met my husband there. I got a great job coming out of there. But it still does haunt me a little bit. When I'm being introduced to someone at work, they say, meet this person. They're so smart. They went to Penn. Yeah. No one ever says, meet this person. They're so smart. They went to, you know, another school. And so every time someone calls out someone's intelligence based on their university, 
I, I feel less than. Yeah. I think the unfortunate reality is we kind of program, even from a very young age, people to key in on those, those status symbols. I remember when I was in sixth grade, went to school in California, public school, we have a program called GATE, which stands for Gifted and Talented Education. Mm-hmm. There's some test and who knows what this test is based on, but allegedly this test is so amazing. It can identify the gifted and talented and, and talented <laughs> students an hour. And so I, I took the test once. I don't think I got in the first time. And then I took it again. And then I, I got in. I think, honestly, it's because my teacher put my her finger on the scale and was like, all right, this kid wants to take he really wants to get in. Just put him in the program. But it's like you tell this group of students, you are now a gifted and talented student, which implies that if you're not in the program, you're neither gifted nor talented. Mm-hmm. And that that continues as we go to college and we get the the school on our resume and maybe the companies that we work for. And all of a sudden we become the product of all of those brands that we carry around on the resume. Um, Malcolm Gladwell has done some great, great research on this. I think one of his controversial tactics is remove people's educational institution from the resume. I just want to talk to them and size them up based on my own, my own abilities and expertise. Yes, because there is also a piece of whether you have the family and financial ability mm-hmm. and people shouldn't be opted out of opportunity based on where they come from. It should be based on who they are. And working overseas, I had the opportunity to work in major organizations with people who didn't even go to university. Yeah. And they were extremely talented and able to contribute at the same or higher levels than their counterparts who did go. And so I just I would just love for us to think about it differently. Well, I hope that as we continue to advance from a technological perspective, we're able to enfranchise a much larger group of people that may not have access to these elite institutions, but have the intellectual horsepower and the drive to really contribute and giving them the educational foundation. I I think it's going to be really exciting in terms of the potential that that unlocks. Yes, I have a lot of hope for them and an interest in helping in whatever way I can to get to that stage. My guest today is Melissa Murray-Bailey. She's the Senior Vice President of Global Sales at Hootsuite. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back to the Legends of Sales and Marketing. Today, I'm joined by Melissa Murray-Bailey, Senior Vice President of Global Sales at Hootsuite. Melissa, we've talked a little bit about your background, this, this leadership instinct that you have. Also, from a young age, you were interested in politics, So I'd love to maybe go back to elementary school, first of all, and talk about your first brush, formal brush with politics. Formal is is a strong association with what happened. Uh, But when I was in eighth grade, there was a presidential election and I raised my hand for the school-wide debate uh, to act as Bill Clinton during that, uh, that debate. And why Bill Clinton? What what excited you about his platform? Yeah, I just remember feeling really enthusiastic about how I thought he was focused on helping people. He was talking a lot about education and making education more accessible. And that resonated with me that I felt like I could go up in front of the school and fight on behalf of that platform and those people that I thought he would be helping if elected. You've got a great story about how those impressions that you formed at a young age really inspired you and motivated you to action later in your life. So this notion of underserved communities, someone that can step in and, and give people a hand up, what inspired you with Bill Clinton actually became a motivator for you to run for political office of your own. So I want to set the stage here. Philadelphia, I think Philadelphia is 89% Democrat. You decide that you're going to run as a Republican for mayor of the city. Melissa, what were you thinking? How did you get yourself into this, this pickle? Well, in hindsight, probably not like setting oneself up for success. 
I just felt like it was something that had to be done because there were voices that needed to be heard. And it, it started by accident. I was at the elementary school. My daughter was meant to be going to kindergarten the next year. And so I was there with all the parents in my neighborhood. And the principal came to the cafeteria and said, here's our cafeteria. All the students in our school get free lunch. And I looked around at my neighbors and the center city community we were living in. And I just raised my hand and said, could you help me understand why everyone gets free lunch? And she said, you know, there are so many kids in Philadelphia who qualify for free lunch that we just give it to everyone because it's less costly than the administration to figure out who does and who doesn't. So I walked home and I'm just like puzzled. I immediately go to my computer and, you know, I've been hearing all of these things. Philadelphia is this great city and I lived in this great neighborhood. I, I It's not reconciling. And so I Googled like child poverty in Philadelphia and a quarter of a million kids are living in poverty in Philadelphia. And I couldn't believe that could be true. And I'm talking to people about it. And someone said, well, there's an election, like do something about it. And I said, like, I will. I looked at the people running and the people running had been involved in the city for decades. And I just knew that you can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. And so someone needs to call out what's happening in the city, the people whose voices aren't heard and the people who are being left behind in the progress of the city. So I just had to speak out. And how did it turn out for you? Well, you previewed that in the beginning. <laughs> when someone was trying to make me feel good about it, they said, well, at least enough people voted for you to fill the stadium in Philadelphia. Okay. So that was about, right. You know, like 13 to 15,000 people. Um, so it turned out badly. What, what impact did that have on you psychologically? It was horrible. That night, as we finished all the like final campaigning, I'm sitting in my car, crying, listening to them say it. Then I have to go into the rally and give my concession speech. And then the newspaper said like, you didn't even do the concession speech, right? That wasn't a concession speech. <laughs> I was still speaking out for what we needed to do. and. I'd never given a concession speech before. I didn't know what to do. And then, you know, didn't get out of bed the next day. And then I realized it helped me finally to really connect with my purpose. And my purpose is to help people connect to economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And great things happened as a result of the election People who I called out as being criminals in political office actually got arrested. Now, when I was saying it, people were saying, you're desperate, you're grasping at straws. But immediately after, there were arrests. Also, I was really focused on bringing jobs to the city that the people in the city who needed jobs could do. And then a call center opened up, which is exactly the right kind of jobs to be bringing into the city. So goodness happened as a result. Um, and I found out like what I really believe in. It takes a very unique person to be able to do what you did. And I think there's something about the reason you did what you did, the choice that you made with respect to college, you weren't focused on the labels. You were focused on the underlying purpose and what what motivated you, what drove you, and despite what everybody else said, you went after it. There, there. Uh, so I've got five kids. We read a lot of children's stories. Dr. Seuss is a favorite. There's that story about the Sneeches, and some are born yes. with a star on them, and some don't have the star. And if you were preoccupied by that star, you wouldn't have run in a largely democratic state against the institutional power, because that's not getting you the star. But that's that's not what drove you. 
you, you had another cause and you were willing to, to put your name behind it. Yes, for sure. It didn't do, do me or my family uh, any favors, but we all did it together and it was important. Yeah. I heard you use the phrase economic opportunity as a fellow LinkedIn alum that is part of LinkedIn's vision. And was the fact that you landed at LinkedIn in any way related to these experiences that you'd gone through previously? For sure. So LinkedIn called me maybe four or five months after the election and asked me to move to Singapore to do a role. And my family and I had already been in Singapore and we were unsure whether we wanted to do that again. And as I started researching LinkedIn and the the aspiration to connect talent to opportunity, the idea of creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce, the economic graph and being able to map skills with jobs and connect that to universities and start to create this ecosystem where people could find opportunity. It just seemed like this is me. And I have to to go for this and be part of a company that is so aligned with this discovery of who I am deep down inside. I've never told you this, but I was having a conversation with your boss, Mike Darison, and he I hadn't met you yet. You were over in APAC and I was based in the United States. I think I was actually on my way over there. So it would be the first time we've been met. And Mike said, hey, Justin, you're going to meet Melissa he didn't mention that you went to Maryland. <laughs> that, that didn't come up in the conversation. What he did say is there's something unique about Melissa. She ran for mayor in Philadelphia and that took guts. So <laughs> that's what he remembered about her. And my guess is that's a big reason that he probably hired you. The The situation over in APAC, there were lots of challenges to work through. I, I think that he recognized in you someone that had the fortitude and the the moral compass to be able to navigate a lot of really challenging situations. So that became your brand. Oh, thank you for sharing that. It's, yeah. uh, I have a, a mentor who I've been working, he, he was my boss's boss from 2007. And as I was talking to him about different career steps across the time since then, he said to me, I said, you know, it's hard. There's so many problems. Like, I'm working to fix. And he said to me after like the third time, like, Melissa, I think the common denominator is you. That's who you are. And that's what you can bring to an organization. And I've started to embrace that. And that is who I am. You let's transition then into your sales background. You really learned how to sell at corporate executive board, obviously known for the challenger sale and other cutting edge thought leadership. But for you, it really was an educational journey. How did you learn to sell? Well, so I started out at CEB in account management. And when I saw the job description, it was described as helping executives to solve their challenges. And I said, love it. That is what I want to do. And then I got there and it was helping executives solve their challenges and ask them for money. I was like, wait a second. By selling them stuff. (laughs) I didn't like truly appreciate that I was getting into sales at that moment. But as we've discussed, like I love helping people. I get my energy from helping people solving big problems. And so I was working with all of these executives, helping them solve their problems. I just focused on that. And then the dollars came. But that was an account management, which is a little bit different than acquisition. So part of my journey at CEB was I went to Australia. And I went to Australia to start the office there. And my boss said to me, as soon as I hit the ground, she was in the U.S., she said, you know, Melissa, before you can hire someone, you need to sell something on your own. First, I was scared to death because I had never done something that wasn't renewal or upsell. It was really scary because I moved to Australia. What if I couldn't do it? And also like it was a baited switch too. But so I started 
prospecting and calling people and I couldn't get anything going. And I remembered my counterpart back in the U.S. I was the head of renewals. He was the head of acquisition. And he had said to me one day when I was giving him a hard time because they were selling things that were the moon and the stars. And then my team had to like figure out how to renew it. He said, well, how often does your team get told no? And I said, well, never more than 10% of the time. And he said, that's how much my team gets told yes. And I remember being like, well, that's terrible. But when I'm in the Australia, not knowing what to do, I reached out to him and I said, Joff, would you spend some time helping me figure out how to sell? And he was so generous and he did role plays. And I'm about to be the leader of Australia. I'm doing role plays on how to schedule a call. And he's like, no, that's not how you do it. Try this. And so I got better and sold my first, uh, my first membership. And, you know, it was great from there, but it was just difficult to have that moment to realize you don't know how to do it and you need somebody's help to teach you. People come to sales leadership in different ways. Some rise up through the ranks and they're a BDR and then they're an account executive and then become a manager. Other people come at it laterally. They've developed leadership skills, but maybe haven't actually carried a bag. I was in the same position. I at Oracle was working in product marketing, first of all, and Erica Rulofsson uh, Schultz, who's another friend of the show, actually took a risk on me and hired me as a sales manager. I never actually sold anything, though. <laughs> and it was very unnerving because I had this team of great people and I was trying to manage them. At the same time, I was asking myself, I don't actually know how to sell. And uh, I remember on one occasion, we were having our sales kickoff and we were doing some training on cold calling. I'd hired a firm to come in and, and teach how to do it. And they had this whole methodology. Well, one of the exercises was they got all these people in a room, put, we call it the hot seat up in the front. They had a live conference phone and we actually had to dial and try to get a CEO on the line. And so there are a hundred people in this room and the trainer goes, okay, can, can we have a volunteer? Well, of course nobody volunteers. And I look around and nobody's raising their hand. So I'm like, all right, I got to do this. I mean, I've told everybody they need to do it. If I can't do it, then how can I ask them to do it? So I walk up to the front and I sit down in the chair and the coach is up in front and he's got his little flip chart and he's showing me all the steps I need to do. The phone rings, somebody picks up and I, I launch into my talk track. I was so scared. I could swear that people just could hear the quiver in my voice. But, you know, there was something about that experience where I was just like, you got to, you know, buck up and do it. And once I proved to myself, not, not so much even proving my team, but proved to myself that I could do it. It gave me a new sense of confidence that I could stand on. Yes. Being brave and leading from the front yeah. are two things. You probably were hoping a little bit that uh, no one was going to answer the phone, right? How many dials <laughs> do you have to make before they say like, all right, not you. Exactly. Exactly. Nope. Nope. They weren't going to let me off the hook, but I survived and uh, everything turned out okay. You're at Hootsuite now. First of all, tell us about Hootsuite. What do you guys do? Yeah, Hootsuite is a company that was founded on the premise of connecting people on social media. And so it's a social platform that helps companies to reach their customers, also with social selling. And now we've just acquired a great new company, Spark Central, that helps with customer care. And so we have this entire platform that allows companies to connect with their customers right from awareness all the way to advocate. So it's a hot space. Obviously, social is more than just a way for friends to connect with each other. It has become a powerful tool that companies can use to engage prospects and customers. I've heard you describe Hootsuite as a company that's in its adolescence. We've had companies on the show that are in their infancy, some that are entering their geriatric years. But I'm fascinated by that stage, the adolescent stage. What exactly do you mean by that? And more specifically, what impact does that have on the way you think about sales? 
So a company in its adolescence, Hootsuite is 13 years old. And a 13-year-old has grown up so much, but also still has so much growing to do and so many exciting moments ahead of it. Great years and ahead. I think about that uh, with Hootsuite, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, we started the category of social media management and had a lot of success helping customers in the early days really figure out social and figuring out how to use it as a platform to connect with their customers, whether they're mom and pop shops or some of the biggest companies in the world. We have 200,000 plus paying customers. And so how I approach that from a sales leadership perspective is looking at all the things that worked really well to get us here. And then how do we scale them? We know the product works. We know it works in the market. And now it's all about pouring fuel on that fire to get it to keep on going and not have it, you know, flame out. We're going to keep on going. And that takes a different way of thinking about sales than when you're in the startup stages. That's Melissa Murray Bailey, Senior Vice President of Global Sales at Hootsuite. When we come back, she'll take us through how Hootsuite revolutionized the way companies engage their prospects and customers and what it takes to lead a sales organization at a company that's only now entering its adolescence. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, my guest is Melissa Murray Bailey. Up next, she'll break down her playbook for sizing up a sales organization and building winning strategies. We'll also hear how she's able to create value from day one by focusing on a few key levers of influence. Let's get back to the conversation. So walk us through the playbook that you use when you landed a new company, for example, when you landed at Hootsuite. How do you size up the lay of the land? And then how do you start to lay down strategy? Yeah, so this is kind of the third time I've come into an organization uh, in this situation where there's so much goodness and so much opportunity in front of it. And so I've learned along the way how to quickly have impact while also learning. And for this time, I've brought I've broken it down into three different categories. The first is people, the second is process, and the third is appreciative inquiry. And I will get to that one, but that is the most critical uh, for me and new one for me in this uh, onboarding experience. So the first is people. So people need a lot of the same things company to company. So there are things that I can do to contribute to the culture, the employee engagement right off the bat before I have the whole picture. So thinking about how do we create a winning culture and how do I develop my leaders to create a culture that has meaning that people feel tied to. So that's priority number one when I get into a company. The second thing is process and data. And so my process is I do stop, start, continue meetings with the executive team, my directs, and then all of their directs. And I find this to be really helpful because it structures a conversation and allows me to get people's perspectives individually. Then I do small group learning sessions. So six to eight people with as many ICs as will sign up. So I just had my fifth one today. So that means 30 ICs have shared. And I ask them to think of one question in advance, which is what's one thing you think I should know? Fascinating what comes back from that. And then the third is teach me sessions where I have people sign up to teach me something they think I should be proficient at. 
instead of me saying, teach me these things, that's going to have blind spots and be biased based on what I think. And so I set that up. And then at the same time, I'm constantly looking at as much data as I can, because data is the only way we can truly triangulate where the opportunities are. And then the third piece is appreciative inquiry. This is the newest for me, because as we've talked about, like, I'm a problem solver. But in order to be a problem solver, you've got to find problems. But I don't want to go into a company and just try to hunt out all the problems there are. And so this time I tried to learn about the appreciative inquiry practice, which is being curious around what's working already. And so instead of, you know, writing down, this isn't working, fix this, I'm writing down, this is going great. How do we scale that? This is going great. How do we build that out? And then I can evolve with the organization instead of being this tornado that comes through to change everything to be in my likeness. I love the fact that you're conscious of the fact that coming into an organization, you may not have the full picture, but you've been able to be very thoughtful about, even if I don't have all the details, where can I immediately add impact? What are the midterm impacts I can drive based on what I'm learning. And then you're also leaving yourself the necessary space and runway to really get underneath some of those deeper issues before you start to try to solve them. That's great advice. Yeah. So as you build your sales platform, what are the elements of the sales platform? How do you actually run that sales organization? Triangulation is, I would say, the easiest way to think about it. Uh, thinking about what are the data inputs? And how do we make sure that we are capturing the right data so we know what's going on and we know if we're making changes, they're having impact. Super important. A new leader comes in and they make all these changes. Like, was it better than it was before or just more comfortable for them? And so the data foundation is super important for me running a sales organization from day one to day, you know, 10,000. I spend every single Monday morning, two hours looking at data, formulating hypotheses, going into the forecast meetings. Then I think about the sales organization and making sure that we are investing in our sales reps in a meaningful and structured way and making sure there is a curriculum laid out to develop the skills that are required, create compelling career paths, helping them to be super engaged because the best way to grow a company is to have people who are doing great, they love what they do and not leaving. And so that is a fundamental piece of where I spend my time. And then the third piece of the, the stool is the customer. And I believe in an always be helping approach to sales. How are we helping customers solve their problem? How are we celebrating customers? How are customers at the core of our decisions? And that is just critical for a sales organization that I lead where people are there because they believe our product makes things better for the people we serve. Let's talk a little bit more about that data. What is on your dashboard that you pay attention to? So the first like most basic dashboard I have is, I would say like the basic math of sales. So looking at numbers of opportunities that are created, the dollars in the pipeline, the deal size, the cycle time, um, and the type of people we're selling to um, so that I can spot if there's any trends. Then I also like to look at metrics that matter. And the metrics that matter are more leading indicators because so many times I'm looking at lagging indicators and that's not telling me like, how do we do things going forward? I also love the gong dashboard that I'm getting uh, that tells me, you know, on average, how much are my team members talking in calls or what are common things that customers are saying and even deals that are at risk because no, nothing has happened with them in a certain amount of time. So I find that tremendously helpful too. You've talked a lot about leadership and 
the fact that there are multiple elements of leadership. There's the people orientation, there's the process orientation, there's the data orientation. And, and really a holistic leader is able to master all of those. I think both of us have had the opportunity to be in meetings with Jeff Weiner, is the former CEO of, of LinkedIn. One of the things that always impressed me about Jeff, he's got creative ideas. Obviously the results speak for themselves. Jeff is a very data-oriented person as well. And it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it kind of did surprise me that Jeff, I think his time to go through the data is like at 5.30 in the morning and he gets up and he has these dashboards. He goes through the dashboards, he blocks off material amounts of time though, to go through the data and to process for himself what that data tells him. When he comes to the meetings, he knows the data just as well as, as many of the experts in the room, which allows him to enter into a level of conversation, which is much richer than someone that's simply looking to get up to speed in the moment. And, and I've always admired that about Jeff and the way that he ran LinkedIn as a company. Yes, I have as well. And I'm similar in that way. I've actually had to share with people why I'm like that, because some people feel a little intimidated or actually like disempowered when you come in knowing all the data and you're asking all the questions. I've gotten feedback that sometimes people think I'm trying to look for an error. Yeah. And I've had to tell them, I'm not trying to look at look for something you did wrong. I'm just trying to fully understand it so I can be the best partner to you um, as we think about what to do next. That's a great point that a lot oftentimes we need to explain our motivations so that people know that where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. One other topic that I wanted to address with you, Melissa, is some of your thoughtful commentary on how we can balance a professional and a personal life. It's a struggle that most executives have. I know you've thought a lot about it and you've you've written some great articles. What thoughts do you have on that topic? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the article is coming up as a woman leader in sales. I tried to always show my most perfect, most polished self. I never spoke about anything personally, never talked about my daughter or anything like that. And then I realized I was not setting up other women for success by doing that because they would say like, oh, look, Melissa has it all together. And I I could never do that. And so maybe I can't get to that role. And the fact of the matter is like, I surely don't. I've had to do things like, you know, not send my daughter to school for a couple of months because we had to figure out our life in a new country. And we all make different decisions, but sharing them, I felt like was a way that I could tell other women, like they can do it. You know, it's, it's going to be hard and it's going to be bumpy, but it's fun and it's going to turn out great. But if I didn't pull back the curtain and share that, then I would have been just demonstrating something that's actually not true. I think you're right. It does take courage to pull back the curtain and to share more of you with others. And there's always this question about how am I going to be received? I also have always admired the phenomenal work that that you've done and, and learned a lot. I had the opportunity to see some of the great things you were doing in APAC when we were at LinkedIn together and copied a lot of those plays down. You'd mentioned that you're cognizant of the fact, though, that as a woman, you have certain responsibilities just as a role model. I'd love to get your advice as one who's trying to be an ally to women that are that are in the process of building their career. What can those who want to be allies do to support others in, in their journey? First, thanks for asking really appreciate um, that question and your like sincere desire to to learn more about that. There's a couple of things that that really stand out to me that I try to draw attention to. The first is making decisions on behalf of women because you think you're being compassionate. So an example of that is, sitting in a leadership team meeting and we're talking about a role that's open and someone mentions a woman and someone else says, oh, but she just had another child and we wouldn't want to put that extra pressure on her. We want to respect, you know, that she has a family. 
and it's coming from a good place. But my role in that meeting is to say, that is not our decision to make. That is her decision to make. And whenever we are opting someone out, we're robbing them of the ability to make that decision on their own. We don't know about their aspirations and we don't know about their situation. We have to ask them. So that's the first thing that I think is so important where good intentions get in the way. The second thing is in conference planning. And this is the one that gets to me the most. Oh my goodness, I have all of these male speakers on stage. We need to get a woman. Let's see if she'll interview the man. Or we have this panel of really smart men, but we need a woman. Can we see if someone can moderate? And a lot of times we think we're bringing diversity to the table, but in fact, we're just putting a woman in a supporting role and patting ourselves on the back. And so we have to recognize women have things to say, things to contribute, and we're not progressing it when we have them in the background, but still on stage. I had an experience earlier in my career where I was talking to a colleague of mine. He was asked to participate in a very prestigious panel. And I said, well, you're going to do it, right? And he said, I told him I wasn't going to do it. I said, why not? And he said, there were just a bunch of men on the panel. And that's not the sales organization that I work for. The sales organization I work for has men and women leaders. And I want people to know that that's, that's what I believe in. And I don't think I could do that if I was on this panel that isn't representative of my reality and the reality that I aspire to, to achieve for the, the bigger community. So he went back and he delivered that message. What I love about the story, though, is the way that it ended up. They didn't get a woman to be the, the panelist. They said, you know what, you're right. We'll work a little harder and try to get a more diverse panel of panel members. And every one of those individuals deserved to be on the stage, whether they are men or women, they all contributed. But it was more, again, representative of, um, of the organization this person was a part of and what, what he aspired to be a part of. So I, I love that idea of speaking with your actions to bring about the right kind of change, not just token change. Yeah. And I think it's also us speaking up and speaking out because a lot of it is unconscious. Mm -hmm. And until we bring it to the consciousness, it's hard to change. Yeah. Well, Melissa, the time has flown by. Unfortunately, we are at the end of our conversation. I'll end with this one last question. As you look back over the arc of your life, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the biggest difference in your life? The ability to help people and the people that I've been able to help going on and doing great things. If I can't say that at the end of my life, then I did not live up to my values. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin, for having me. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activities sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.